Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host today in Johannesburg, not in Cape Town, uh, Kobus van Staden of the Stellenbosch Center for Chinese Studies. Good morning, St- uh, Kobus. Good morning. How are you? How are you? Wonderful. Well, we have a little bit better connection this week than we did last week. So we're going to get on with three of our topics that we're going to cover this week. Uh, the China-Sudan oil issue is one that's been bubbling up, coming in the midst of a uh, brewing emergence of uh, Sudan's civil war and how China's kind of sucked in the middle of this, also in the wake of the hostage crisis that emerged there. Not that long ago. Also, we're going to take a look at a report from Amnesty International alleging that uh, it's Chinese and Russian arms that are really fueling the war in Sudan. And finally, going to revisit a topic that we picked up a couple of weeks ago on uh, on the podcast about Chinese demand for ivory and how that is driving the illegal poaching and killing of animals. So let's get started with uh, Sudan. Uh, Kobus, we've been looking at the Sudan issue, you know, in lots of different angles, but it really has popped up this time now in relation to its oil interests and how the South Sudanese are threatening to expel uh, the Chinese and and basically any foreign oil company that allegedly sells stolen oil to North Sudan. Tell us a little bit more about what you're reading on this. Well, you know, kind of this comes in part of the, it's part of the bigger fight between between South Sudan and, you know, and and the North um, regarding the the levies charged by 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 Khartoum, um, you know, kind of for the use of its pipelines. Now, South Sudan has most of the oil, you know, kind of, and and when when it became independent, you know, um, that kind of threw um, north northern the northern part of Sudan into a bit of an economic crisis, you know, kind of because they lost a, a large chunk of their oil reserves. But Khartoum has 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 access to the the pipelines that take those the take the oil to the port, um, you know, kind of. So now. Now um, it, it's an issue of how much South Sudan is supposed to be paying to North Sudan to be able to use that pipeline. So in the breakup of the Sudans, the division came down to that the majority of the oil is in the south, but the refining and, and pipelines, obviously, and the kind of pr- production of oil and also the ports are in the north. And so this they thought in the original idea was that they would create this dependency where both sides would actually depend on one another because they had mutual interests in collaborating with one another. What's turning out now is that with the, the, the you know, it started with a border region that became extremely tense, and now what's happening is that spreading into a, a full-out oil dispute, which is now spreading into potentially a reignition of the, a reigniting, actually, of the Civil War. Um, what I find is so interesting, and I'd be interested to hear your, your take on this, is that it really was the Chinese who built up the Sudanese oil industry from nothing. So if we go back 10 or 15 years before the Chinese really started investing, which was CNPC and CNUC for the most part, the big state-run oil companies, they really took Sudan's oil industry from a decrepit backwater nothing and turned it into what it is today. So it kind of comes to me as a little bit of a surprise that the South Sudanese would would turn on such a, a loyal, reliable partner in that sense, uh, you know. Or let me let me phrase another question: Are they just focusing on anybody that's doing oil business with the North, and this really isn't about the Chinese in specific? Well, I don't know because I mean the Malaysians and the Indians are also involved in the oil business in 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 South Sudan. But but you know, kind of when the the South Sudanese minister who who everyone is quoting, um, when you know, kind of he he mentioned the Chinese by name. So you know, kind of I don't know, like you know, kind of one of the issues has been you know, kind of Sudan has been one of China's rare kind of. 
uh, forays into trying to in trying to kind of broker you know relations between other countries. Um, you know, they, and they were relatively they they try to you know as far as China goes. You know, kind of um, you know they 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 release statements saying that the North and the South should work together, and so on. So you know they they really are kind of caught between these two countries. And yeah, as you as you say, it seems like they're kind of being punished a little bit for kind of for the investments they made. Yeah, it's hard to tell the politics of this, and I, I'm not a a, Sud- a Sudan China expert. By the way, if if you're looking for some analysis on this, there's a a guy out of uh, the London School of Economics by the name of Daniel Large, who is really the preeminent expert on uh, Chinese Sudan Sudanese relations. And I encourage you to kind of take a look at at any of his writing and his work. But uh, so it's hard to separate what are the in, the domestic politics and where China is kind of being sucked into it just as a, as an outside player. But you did mention China's mediation role, and that is one of the more interesting aspects of all of this because it is one of the first times that we've seen that I can recall from any you know from anything I've been studying that China is playing a international mediation role on on par with the United States, and that really is. Uh, in some sense, it's a credit to China's role and, and presence in the region. And I read an analysis earlier this week that you know the Sudan, the Sudan issue is almost one of the the proxy battles in Africa between the U.S. and China for influence. Will the U.S. mediation, who's also playing a role in peace, in trying to bridge the the, the divide between the two Sudans, will their approach work or will it be the Chinese approach? And so, but of course, publicly, both sides say they're all working together, but it is interesting who will prevail in terms of influence at the end of all this. One other final point on this before we move on. You brought up uh, an interesting point that CNPC, which of course is the China Nat- National Petroleum Corporation, which is one of the, again, the big state-run oil companies uh, in China, um, has come across a... Uh, a, a reserve. Uh, they found an oil discovery of the of, of really the best kind of oil, which is the sweet crude, and uh, and how might that actually complicate all of this? I think it definitely could complicate it because it's slap bang in the most tense part of you know kind of the shared area between South and North Sudan. You know, kind of it's in South Kordovan in the southern Darfur kind of area, um, and you know, kind of that's an area that that's generally controlled by Chinese oil companies. But it's it's also one of the areas that is the most up for grabs, you know, the most contested, you know, kind of between, between, um, you know, the South and the North. And if, if my, my guess also being, you know, not, not a, a Sudan expert, but my guess would be if violence reoccurs between the South and North, there's a good chance it might reoccur right there. Well, in the South Kordofan area, which of course is the area where some 50 Chinese workers were kidnapped just two weeks ago. And so one final question that kind of hangs over all of this is that will we see the militarization of the Chinese presence in Sudan as a way to protect its, you know, human and physical assets that are there? And so that's, you know, will the Chinese bring in more more, more either private contractors or will they bring in their own PLA troops to protect their oil interests and the workers who are there? So that South Kordofan area is really one of the most uh, sensitive, but it also appears to be one of the most lucrative. And this is really going to perf- be an interesting test for the Chinese, in my opinion, because can they operate in these very unstable regions? And that was the question that's been kind of circulating around Twitter and circulating on on, on the blogs of the past couple of weeks since the kidnappings, is that will the kidnappings force a reevaluation of Chinese strategy to move into these, these uh, highly, highly volatile regions? Or 
you know, kidnappings for the Chinese may not have the same meaning as they do for the West. You know, certainly everybody freaks out in the West when their workers or nationals are kidnapped, but that may not play the same way back home. There was a lot of domestic pressure on Hu Jintao, on Wen Jiabao, to solve this problem. But it, at the end of the day, the money and the access to those resources may prevail. So I just I kind of put that out there as that there's a different domestic political consideration to that. Any final thoughts on China-Sudan before we move on to the amnesty report, Kobus? Well, the other thing is, is that um, South Sudan, in its, in its, you know, in, in its kind of attempts to kind of move out of this kind of deadlock it finds itself in, uh, because the, the oil, the oil, um, you know, negotiation is pretty much broken down last week. You know, kind of. So they're really, the, you know, the situation is really polarized at the moment. They're going back into negotiation next week, apparently on the twenty second. Um, but you know, you know, it doesn't look good. The meanwhile, South Sudan seemed to have inked an agreement with Kenya for another pipeline that takes that would take oil to a Kenyan port. Um, but the problem is it runs through, like, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's like more than, it's a, more than a thousand kilometers long and it runs through rebel controlled areas, um, from the Chinese fields to the port of Jabu, um, or, and then, and then from there to Lamu, um, and, you know, no one has said yet who's going to be building this pipeline, but I think it's going to be very interesting to see which, you know, kind of pipeline building companies from which countries, are, you know, are going to be fighting for that contract and who will get it. And one has to think that if that pipeline actually is made, then that to me will be the indication that we're going to go into an all-out war between South Sudan and North Sudan, because at that point, that dependency factor, which was kind of baked into the separation, is no longer there. So there's really no incentive for the two to work together. So that pipeline, there's a lot riding on that pipeline, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we're going to continue with Sudan and this idea of war and violence and, and really this, you know, the horrific things that are happening there. Uh, Amnesty International last week uh, came out with a new report, which alleges that Russia and China have been supplying arms to the government and to the, to the, to the factions as well. Uh, and not just arms, what we think of kind of, you know, in most African conflicts, really the most deadliest arms are the, the light uh, weapons, the, the AK-47s and whatnot. But here in the Amnesty Report, they're actually alleging that anti-aircraft, fighter aircraft, you know, heavy weapons are also making their way in, both from Chinese and from Russian suppliers, into Sudanese hands and, and fueling rights abuses and fueling the conflict in spite of a UN arms embargo. Um, what is, was this a surprise to you, Kobus? Because to me, I was just kind of like, yeah, seen this before. This didn't really, this didn't shock me in any ways. And I don't know if it should have or not. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of, you know, kind of depressing, but not surprising, <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, particularly in the context, the wider context of the Chinese also selling arms to Zimbabwe. Um, you know, I can't say that this surprised me particularly. What what was a bit odd for me about the report, um, you know, kind of, I, I scanned through the, the, the full report as they, they seem to be conflating, um, you know, kind of Belarus, Russia and China in the report, and then breaking them down and making the distinctions that, you know, kind of that the, the Russians and the Chinese seem to be selling different things. So the aircraft seem to be coming from Russia, while the Chinese seem to be focusing on on uh, lots of ammunition, both large caliber and small caliber ammunition, ammunition as well as rocket launchers. Um, so did this strike you as, as a kind of a weird thing for, for Amnesty International to be conflating these two situations? Well, I, it, that did 
that I, I now that you said I didn't notice it at first, but now that you say it, it does kind of strike me as a little bit unusual. What I my biggest objection to the amnesty report is the use of the word China and Russia, and again, those are very very broad words to describe extraordinarily complex countries. And what I'm trying to say here is that we don't know if these are official arms sales or if these are black market arms sales. Um, and, and they just say China and Russia as kind of generic terms. Whether or not these are sanctioned actually by the state is something that is hard to determine, if not impossible to determine. So if companies like Norinco, which is the major Chinese, uh, one of the major Chinese weapons manufacturers, um, is actually having a deal like what they did with Zimbabwe. Now, Zimbabwe was an official state-to-state weapons transfer and weapons agreement. In these types of uh, you know civil war type environments, um, it's hard to tell if these are black market deals or if this is actually a, le- a legitimate part of Chinese foreign policy made you know in both either the defense ministry or at the in the president's office as to what they want to do. So that was where the, it lacked a certain subtlety and nuance. Now I understand that Amnesty, like Human Rights Watch has to boil these issues down into a point where they have to oversimplify them in order to get people's attention. And, okay, so that's always been one of the problems of Amnesty and Human Rights Watch. We saw Human Rights Watch coming under attack for the report on Zambia and the Chinese labor conditions there uh, for the same reasons of the oversimplification. So I, I have a long-term history of objecting to these NGO reports because of that. That said... I would have wished that they offered a little more precision on exactly who they believe is behind these arms sales. Exactly. It also seems to me that, you know, kind of combining the two into one report rather than releasing two, you know, releasing one report about gunships and another one about small arms, for example, um, is, you know, that that it, it also coincided with the, the, the UN vote on Syria, you know, kind of where, where China and, and Russia, um, you know, kind of were working together to veto, veto the vote. Um, and it, it seemed to me, you know, kind of that, yeah, you know, kind of the, just the conflation of, of, of China and Russia, who, you know, generally, particularly in relation to Africa, have very different the very different kind of agendas and very different kind of realities, you know, seem to me interesting, you know, kind of in, in this particular kind of release. So let me give you, I'm going to quote an example here from what uh, what Brian Wood, who's an expert on military and policing for Amnesty, I have no idea what his qualifications are beyond that, but he says, quote, China and Russia are selling arms to the government of Sudan in the full knowledge that many of them are likely to end up being used to commit human rights violations in Darfur. And again, that to me is... Um, it, it makes for very, very compelling con- uh, copy. It's a very compelling kind of soundbite. I think, I suspect that the narrative behind that is much more complicated the way that Brian Wood is framing it. Um, I suspect that there are, there's lots of gray areas in terms of, uh, of selling that. That's not to say that I don't believe that the Chinese government is absolutely capable of selling weapons to the biggest assholes in the, in the planet, which we've seen in Zimbabwe and we've seen elsewhere. Um, I just... I'm trying to figure out China's uh, foreign policy agenda here and what they benefit from selling arms and fueling instability in in Sudan, Um, besides money. That's an obvious thing. That's where, I mean, their interest in Sudan, as we talked about in the earlier segment, is to try and get these parties kind of calm. They want, they're under tremendous international political pressure to bring an end to the fighting in Darfur because they've been attached to it. You remember the whole campaign during the 2008 Olympics where actors like George Clooney singled out China. So they've, they've come under considerable international pressure. And I'm just trying to figure out what the, what the motivation would be for the Chinese to continue selling if it was, in fact, along official channels. 
Exactly. Particularly also because now, you know, post post the, the, the kidnapping incident, China really is vulnerable, you know, kind of, it's, it's directly vulnerable to, to instability in Sudan. So, you know, kind of fueling it on the one hand and then and then get becoming a victim of it on the other hand seems strange. It, it does seem like there is some kind of issue that may that might also relate to the, the general kind of weakness of the the um, arms embargo on on Darfur, you know, kind of where it's actually in technically not that illegal to to kind of sell arms to Sudan as long as you get a, a you know a, a, a you know kind of, a, kind of a, an agreement that that those arms aren't then going to Darfur, which I think you know seems very weak to me on on, on the face of it. That's right. So remember, the arms embargo, as you pointed out, is exclusively for Darfur. Uh, they can make very compelling arguments that fighter aircraft are for other defense means. So, so that's that's a very important point to bring up. Uh, the the last point I think that is is this Sudan in so many ways has been the the really the best ch- test for China's non-intervention policy. Um, you know, this whole foundation that goes back to Zhou Enlai uh, of, of not intervening in the internal affairs of other countries. And I think in so many ways, China is getting sucked into Sudan, both on the diplomatic level, the political level, the economic level, now on military matters as well. And I think so one kind of theme to watch going forward is going to be, you know, can China maintain this, you know, with a, any kind of seriousness or a straight face, the idea that it is uh, you know, respecting its non-intervention policies, and at the same time actively intervening by selling weapons to one side of the conflict, trying to mediate, you know, and then just being sucked deeper and deeper into the cesspool that is Sudan today. So that that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Um, let's move on now to our final subject, and it's one that, you know, it just breaks your heart because you, you see the the absolute violence that's happening across Africa for for the demand for for natural resources and for animals and the disregard that there seems to be particularly in uh, among Chinese consumers for the origins of where ivory comes from and so we're seeing yet again more reports of just surging demand for ivory and, and coming out of uh, uh, largely out of China now we should make a point though it's not only China it's Chinese communities up and down Asia whether it's in Taiwan Malaysia Singapore there is this huge demand for ivory that is fueling um, the, the illegal poaching. Um, what are you seeing that's that's new in this, Kobus? Well, you know, um, one of the, there's the the issue of of ivory. You know, kind of becomes the more com- more com- more and more complicated the you know the closer you are to Africa. Um, what's new in this particularly right now is that recently, um, you know, there's about 200 elephants, a massive herd of about 200 um, elephants in, uh, I'm massacring this name, but in the Buba Ndida National Park in Cameroon, were pretty much wiped out with machine guns. Um, and those those tusks were, you know, were, were, were kind of hacked out and and stolen you know um and th- that destroyed almost an entire massive herd you know kind of almost all of the elephants in that particular national park um at the same time you know kind of elephants elephant numbers in the drc have plummeted there's is something like one percent of what it used to be 10 years ago um but when you look at the situation in southern africa it's actually a bit more complicated because South Africa, Botswana, uh, to a certain extent Zimbabwe and Namibia have been very successful in elephant conservation. A bit 
too successful now because actually you know kind of there's actually now more elephants than national parks in southern africa can really you know kind of support elephants are they tend to roam incredibly widely. They tend to uh, be very destructive on the, you know, on, on the the natural resources. They they're actually part of a of a cycle in southern African ecology where you know kind of scrubland kind of comes up when the elephants migrate away, and when they come back, they literally clear hundreds of hectares of trees simply by breaking them down or like you know eating their bark. Um, so now parts of South Africa have become so successful at, at conserving elephants that they, there's nothing for the elephants to eat anymore. Not to mention probably the, the conflicts that elephants have with farmers. Uh, I can imagine that elephants aren't too considerate of any type of barriers for far- that farmers may put up, whatnot, too. And that, so as elephant population expands and the human population also expands, those two bump into each other. Exactly, exactly. Which means there's local resentments that make it easy for to, to, to kind of to find poachers. You know, kind of um, it's it, that's been a, a massive problem in Central Africa, where you know, you know, by the tenth or twentieth time that that elephants kind of eat everything in your on in your on your little your little small farm, you become much more amenable to the idea of going to like kill one or two of them. You know, um, the the other issue is that in order to to maintain the environment in South Africa, South African um, wildlife authorities have been forced to actually cull elephants. So there's there's controlled hunts of elephants in order to just simply control the populations, which means that South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, and so on, are sitting on massive stockpiles of ivory. Um, and, at the, and at the same time, don't really have enough money to maintain their, their wildlife conservation activities, which is one of the reasons why controlled sales of ivories to firstly to Japan and then to China were allowed by CITES, the, you know, the, the um, Convention for International Trade in Endangered Species, uh, you know, kind of twice or so during the last decade. It doesn't strike me, though, that a controlled sale will, will fundamentally solve the problem because really the problem is on the, on the Chinese demand side of it all. So that as long as there's a demand for ivory, um, you know, whether it's, it, it's provided through a controlled sale or through illegal poaching doesn't matter to the end consumer, ultimately, um, you're not going to solve this problem. And you're going to continue to have rhinos and, and, uh, and elephants uh, that suffer at the hands of poachers because of the demand. So unless you it, it just it feels to me a little bit like it's a little bit like the drug trade is that it's not a supply problem. It's a demand problem. And, and stem the demand and you can then deal with the supply. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I just I question it. But I also what we made, we made this point, uh, you know, a few weeks ago when we talked about it last, that this is really one of the areas for the Chinese to take leadership in their public relations in Africa. If you could imagine uh, huge public awareness campaigns being broadcast both in China and in Africa on from the government perspective, using CCTV Africa, their new beautiful brand new high definition broadcasting service out of Nairobi. This is one of the areas where they could take leadership and really get some good press out of it. You know, so if I was hired by the, the Chinese foreign ministry to uh, to say, well, what can we do to improve our, our image both globally and in Africa? This is a no brainer in my view, you know, to really kind of come out strongly against illegal poaching and, and really pushing down on the on the illegal demand for it. Exactly. And I mean, you know, kind of, it's it's also because the Chinese are actually, you know, as, as Asian countries go, the Chinese are actually already trying to do something. You know, kind of, there, there are... Um, 
structures in place to 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 regulate and you know authorize legal ivory trade in in China. And now you know a, a recent report has found that only about a third of the of the ivory in traded in China is legal. Um, but that said, um, the same report was saying that that Thailand is pretty much a free-for-all. You know, kind of Thailand, Thailand is like uh, the kind of wild west of, of ivory trade, while in China, at least, they are, on these mar these ivory markets, there are signs up that every tusk has to have a certificate and so on and so on. So, you know, the Chinese are already kind of doing something, albeit not particularly effectively. Um, but, you know, kind of, so so it does seem to be, if, if they, if they, put more resources into it and also if they integrate their policing with policing in Africa in order to not only to 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 get the tusks when they arrive in Africa but to actually you know kind of police the entire supply chain um, then that would be very effective and that uh, you know and again that goes back to my point at the top of this segment which was the demand does not only come from China it's very important that you know when you're in places like Malaysia or Singapore or Indonesia in the Chinese communities that are there you, you walk in the stores and I remember in, in Kuala Lumpur in the Chinese community, I just saw this huge tusk, you know, carved intricately and beautifully. And you just think to yourself, oh, where did that come from? You know, and I think it, you know, it also brings up, you know, just the the, the emotional connection that a lot of people had. In fact, uh, the some of the, the, the top journalism photos of 2011 uh, were awarded uh, prizes last week. And one of the prizes for best nature photography um, was a was two rhinos together. I don't know if you saw this, Cobus, but one, you know, they were kind of rubbing noses, and one of them had their horn cut off from a poacher, and the other one was, you know, was perfectly in form. And so it really kind of, you know, just pulls at your heartstrings, which again is what I kind of look at this as an opportunity for the Chinese to take advantage of from a PR perspective to take the upper hand on this and to take the leadership role in, con in combating illegal uh, poaching and really kind of forcing, uh, you know, not only... China, but really putting pressure now on 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 uh, you know across Asia, on countries to uh, to to crack down crack down on this. So, um, of course, one of the issues that we will probably revisit, no doubt, in the coming uh, in the coming weeks again, because this is one of those kind of thematics that doesn't seem to to go away anytime soon. Kobus, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to find you on Twitter and uh, on the social networks, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And uh, also Kobus is at the uh, Stellenbosch University Center for Chinese Studies, which has just some fantastic writing coming out of it. I mean, I've just been so impressed with the quality of work from students there on uh, not only China in Africa, but also Asia in general. So a lot of Indian and Japanese uh, research coming out of there as well. So it's something to kind of uh, follow Kobus on. And you can find me over on Twitter at EOLander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting uh, every day on the kind of top five or six articles on China in Africa. And of course, Kobus uh, and I both kind of right now on ChinaAfricaProject.com. That's the blog for this podcast. So you can kind of check that out. We're updating it eh, about once or twice a week when we can. Uh, and then, of course, you can find me over at France24.com here in Paris. That'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And for Kobus Van Staden in Johannesburg, thanks for listening. <laughs>